Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's swchangehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 63, with the title, Only Ourselves Can Free Our Minds. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Maureen Pascoe. Maureen describes herself as an armchair freedom fighter, an inside-outsider. She is also a programme manager, a safeguarding adults trainer and an assertive coach. When I asked Maureen to describe her superpower, she said it's her ability to see issues from all sorts of perspectives, simultaneously and with empathy. Hello, Maureen. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it's a privilege and an honour to be invited to do my uh, soapbox thing. <laughs> um, to be invited to talk about issues and uh, situations around the world, around inclusion and belonging. And for me, like we were saying earlier, uh, equality and diversity for me also complements those central values and just listening to you introduce me and my ramshackle set of job roles and um, influences I think altogether do they do describe who I am and why I guess I've met you in the first place why I work for House and Diversity Network that's one of the things that I do um, as a child um, that title uh, only ourselves can free our minds. I do really hope I'm not misquoting the wonderful Bob Marley, R.I.P. Uh, his music was an essential part of the way I was brought up in North London. It says something about my cultural heritage, which is Caribbean. It's also a nod to my parents when they came to this country um, all those years ago in the 50s. Uh, they brought uh, their culture with them. And uh, that reference to insider, outsider is to do with the fact that I had more than one cultural influence going on in my life. And I think this is true for a lot of people who are first, second, third generation, is that you're almost looking at the same situation that somebody who's born in that country with one dimensional culture, if I put it that way, is only seeing it in one way. So um, food, take food, <laughs> classic one. There's food you have at school and there's food you have at home <laughs> when you're growing up. There's the music you hear when you go out with your friends and there's the music you hear when you go out to um, cultural parties, you know, christenings, party, uh, Christmas events and so on. This sort of double vision, almost like I would say like a, a, a super, super, a super skill. Because you realise that actually when you're growing up, um, you're, the way we're socialised and normalised into a country, you can only understand how blinkered that is when you have another way of looking at the same situation because of perhaps culture or travel or some other influence that's going on in your life. And um, I take the, my hat off to people, and in this particular case, to my parents and all that generation who travelled halfway around the world and in my parents' case had never left that island until they came to Britain. And so when they made the decision to leave, it was a huge decision. Um, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity to do this podcast with you because I almost feel, maybe because I'm getting older, I want to pay tribute to all those influences in my life. And actually it starts with my parents. You know that reference you made to me being, um, oh, well, I said it, armchair liberator, armchair freedom fighter. That is definitely a nod to my father, who, when we were growing up as kids, he always talked about the political situation of the world. He didn't just talk about our woes and our challenges. He always connected it with what was going on in Kenya and what was going on in South Africa. And even though I wasn't from South Africa or Kenya, 
I think at an early age, it developed that kind of political way of looking at things and to show the interconnectivity between things that don't look as if they're connected at all. And, um, and he was like that because he himself, um, in, on the island of Grenada where he was born, um, the island was still um, part of the British Empire at that time in the 50s. And he was definitely part of the movement, the trade union movement that was beginning to challenge that kind of cultural hegemony. And his generation of young people um, were very active. And eventually it did lead to um, Grenada having its first homegrown prime minister rather than the governor general <laughs> from, the, from you know, the UK. So very early on, I'd say the influence of my father, um, God bless him, um, has been really important. And I think I've taken that through life, that I look at the struggles around inclusion and belonging through a political lens, and which is why social justice and um, equality is so important to me. I was a child when, you know, the Race Relations Act, as it was called then, and the Sex Discrimination Act were coming in. I wasn't aware of them, but that's my era. That's my decade, the 70s. And there was lots going on, Joe. There was, I remember watching television, still black and white in those days, and seeing this woman with this enormous afro. I had no idea who she was, but I just remember being awestruck by her and the way she was speaking and her confidence and her posture and her political statements. I was a kid, but I then found out she was Angela Davis. I don't know if you were of Angela Davis, part of the sort of um, black consciousness movement in America. But this was a time when women weren't at the forefront. They weren't as vocal and loud and confident and knowledgeable like she was. And she was a huge influence on um, my idea of myself and what you should be concerned about and what was important and challenging the current mores in British life during the 70s and so on. So from my father to Angela Davis, um, and then, as I say, Bob Marley with that quote, it's the sense that it's not easy, it's complex, that on the one hand you're trying to free yourself from a situation of empire, oppression, let's say, let's get it out, racism, and at the same time, there's also a process that has to begin inside your, of yourself. There's all, so that, so his very clever quote that as a result of that experience of colonies and colonization, there's the act of colonizing your mind. And you almost, because it's so powerful and so pervasive, you almost have to transform yourself inside out as well as be actively <laughs> protesting and marching and supporting and being allies with other people so hence that quote and I think it's very much the way I approach these issues um, around thriving in the world that allows each and every one of us to be our full potential I see rightly or wrongly through that through that lens um, I don't think it's wrong I just think it's it adds to the um, the utensils that we have to unpick what's going on uh, I think a lot of um, decisions and the way we live have a political basis to them, but we don't necessarily investigate them or are aware of them. We just think it's how it is and so, you know, tough. <laughs> but actually a lot of things can be undone and unraveled if we had the right political uh, awareness, knowledge, structure and people in place. Hence, uh, hopefully that explains my... Yeah. armchair liberator bit meaning that i'm not always storming up and down the streets but i do support people who do bother to do that may call me a bit you know yeah <laughs> armchair <laughs> yeah i know i mean your your quote from bob marley there i'm just i've just looked it up while you've been talking it's from redemption redemption song ah. and as we know redemption song is emphatically a protest against discrimination yes and yeah the, the line is we're going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because Amen. whilst others may free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. And I think what you're saying there is you, you talk about colonization of your mind. Mm. Yes, you are free to walk down the street, but there's a mm. lot of other stuff in, in one, in your heads, in the people, heads of people around you. Uh, 
that's what you've got to decolonize if you like you've got to give yourself that mental freedom and escape that mental slavery if you like you know the the shackles have been long since uh shed amen to that absolutely and it's it's a hard battle it's wearying you know let me give you an example was it just the other week have you heard of the case of child q this yes yes i heard yes um you know, when I was preparing and thinking about doing this podcast with you and becoming really enthusiastic and delighted to have this opportunity to get some stuff off my chest, this would be one of those most recent things that horrified me and kind of, I guess, emotionally, mentally put me back a little bit, even though this case has nothing directly directly to do with me. But that's the whole point, Joe, is that call me a bit woohoo but I do feel we are connected and just because that's happening to somebody's child in Hackney I believe the school was in London and for the benefit of your listeners who are not don't know what I'm talking about in relation to child Q this is a 15 year old black girl who was on her period who teachers thought she was on drugs or taking drugs they they smelt something um and if I'm misquoting, forgive me, folks, but you can look this up because it's still live, the case, um, in, in terms of the court proceedings. But it happened a couple of years back. She was 15 at the time. The point is, she's a black girl, a minor, in school, where it's meant to be a place of safety. I mean, you know, for most people, schools are a safe space. But hey, we all know that's not quite true. And the nub of the story was her own teachers called the police on her because of their suspicion and then left her with the police who then proceeded to um, body search her you know is that the right term stripped she was naked I haven't heard of something so personally traumatizing for a long time and when when people think you know people ask what is structural racism for me that embodies it in a nutshell that action that's what it is. It's a situation where you cannot envisage a young white girl. I mean, if it did happen to a young white girl, I think <laughs> Parliament would be stormed. You know, it's unthinkable. But it seems mm. when it comes to, in this case, and I, I am a black person, so I'm going to talk about black people because I can talk about, you know, from experiences. When it comes to being a black person, that level of abuse, um, apart from leaving people like myself speechless, because we're just like, here we go again, <laughs> um, is, um, as I say, even within her safe space, in an institution, education, she wasn't actually safe. And the people she was looking to, um, to carry out that, um, you know, is it parentis, you know, when your parents, when you're at somebody else's care, which teachers carry yeah. out, they let her down badly because they had no right. She was a child, an adolescent, a minor. She had the right to have an adult, have her parents called when the police were called. None of that what happened. She was strict. She's on her period. And that's already very personal, excuse me. And then to be strip-searched. And then to be, apparently the officers concerned were um, women. On so many levels, um, I'm not connected to the family I'm not the parent. I'm not, as a human being, it's horrific. And as I say, for a lot of people, that could only take place because we're not equal. Black, white children are not valued equally. There is no respecting of boundaries. Her parents weren't included. It hurt me to my core. And I'm not even, I'm not a teacher. I would even describe myself as an equality, diversity, inspiration specialist because I'm not. And that's the irony, Joe, that you get pulled into things or somebody like me gets pulled into things, even though your profession is something completely different. You cannot ignore what well, I found. it. I can't ignore what goes on in other spaces. And you find yourself in this inclusion space because from a social justice point of view, I'm involved. That's the politics of it. And the luxury of just having a career in engineering or just being a trainer, it feels to me that for a lot of us, we have no choice. We can't just have a job. We have to also be part of the struggle. 
uh, no, I can't, I'm not speaking for all black people, how dare I? I can't. I'm speaking for me and a lot of other people who find themselves drawn in, maybe because of our personalities, our star signs, we we identify with other humans who suffer. And I think that's been ingrained in me from a very long time. And then the sadness of it, we take two steps forward and then something like that happens. And I think, oh, right. Then the shooting in Buffalo. I think, ah, oh, you know, it, <laughs> how do we do that? You know, how do how do people get up every day out of bed and carry on when, again, it's not just the fact that they were black. Let's be absolutely clear about this. It's people just going about their business with shopping. How mundane can you get when you're doing your food shopping? They're going about their business shopping getting food in for their family. People were expecting guests. Granny was coming. Next minute, 11 people are shot by... Now, this is controversial. He, he's described in the media as um, a white supremacist, domestic, domestic terrorist. And I think that's good. That you know, I was thinking, if this had been somebody of a Muslim background, okay, if it had been reversed, it would, this would be all over the media, all over Twitter, all over the, wherever it is, and I'm thinking, I'm watching and waiting to see how this is going to be analysed and picked over because I'm not hearing too much about the impact of that at the moment. And um, and again, if people want to ask me, what is structural racism? Structural racism is when impacts of action are not viewed, are not valued in the same way because the humans are not valued in the same way. And that's it in a nutshell. And we are where we are. We made some progress in some areas. And then something like this happens. I'm not American. And yet I'm connected with what's going on. Because the, the theme here was this white supremacist, and this is where race comes into it. He's, he said, um, you know, he filmed what he was doing. And that was the whole point. He wanted to get rid of or whatever, annihilate, exterminate black people. So for me, um, being the, em the empathic person that I am, the social justice person that I am, the political person that I am, I just look at this on a human level and think, unless we, um, this can only get worse, unless there is a concerted, systemic, joined up, um, progressive alliance of people, like-minded people, to fight this this thing, um, which is so dangerous for lots of groups of people. But I, I would say to you, though, when it starts with one group of people, and in this instance, it was about skin color. This person has in their head that you're not as good as. It then moves on to other groups of people. This is my experience. I've been on the planet quite a long time. When one group of people start being the target of this kind of oppressive, uh, um, discriminatory, in this instance, racist attack, other groups who are marginalised also become, they start getting lined up too. Look at Hitler, look at Germany. Um, I came back from a trip um, from Krakow the other week, and um, as part of that, we went to Auschwitz. And that was something I'd always wanted to do, because I wanted to pay my respects and to see with my own eyes and to hear with my own ears what had happened in Europe during that time. And it's like we haven't learned much. You know, we, in some respects, we've moved on a lot. There hasn't been a war in Europe for a long time. But hey-ho, Russia and Ukraine. Things, you know, we don't always, it's, it's not always linear. We, it's kind of, if we're not careful, cyclical. And we have to keep alert and watchful. So, 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 Doing this with you today, I am both happy to be doing this with you. Um, having met you and we've spoken before, that's great and that's positive. The other side of me is thinking <laughs> I'm a bit flat as a result of those two things that have happened. And the connection is strong because, but for the grace of God, that could easily be my family member or somebody, you know, or me. Because the only thing was, they were black. Mm. That was it. They, they hadn't done anything to him. They were just going about their business and they were outside. Mistake number one. It's hurtful. It's difficult. 
and a, uh, a massive difference of how people are perceived mm. in what they're doing in in the world in the streets depend on their skin color and I, you're talking there i was thinking back to the january 6th capital riots in the u.s there were white right. people touting automatic weapons standing on steps in public armed like like military armed if if those people had been black the outcome would have been completely different there would have been snipers they'd have been shot they'd have been beaten up they'd have been but the white people were kind of rounded up and pushed away and then they did the investigation afterwards had it been black people there'd have been riot police truncheons military um and i have no doubt that people would have been shot and killed on the spot so how and that, that's American. I appreciate that's America. That's not the UK. But we're still, as you've, you've talked about already, the systemic structural racism that exists. That that damning report that about the, the Met Police aren't racist came out. Was it two years ago? Whenever eighteen months ago, mm-hmm. and the whole country laughed and went, "Hang on a minute how how can you seriously say that there isn't structural and endemic racism within many police forces? Maybe individual officers." No, but it's endemic within the within the structure, and as, as we've seen from Child Q, racism existed there. Which is, yeah, I'm pleased to see the officers were suspended, and it's been a thorough investigation. And child protection has been involved, and hopefully, we'll see positive resolution. But the default belief is that white people are good, black people are always up to no good; they're always always bad, and that exists in many many situations, uh, even today in 2022. And I'm mm-hmm. sure, I don't know if you take any solace from it, that Cressida Dick eventually resigned or was pushed out when they, they put their hand up and said, yes, we agree, the Met Police is sexist, it is homophobic, it, it is racist at its core, and something needs to be done. Because unless we're prepared to stand up and say this, nothing will ever change. And the rate of change, I'm sure you'll you'll be frustrated with, because I think even the World Economic Forum are saying mm-hmm. it's going to be 50 to 70 years for even some level of gender equality in the Western world, let alone racial equality, let alone disability equality, LGBTQ plus equality, etc. So we've got a long way to go. And if you don't fit into that straight jacket of normal or typical or on, on the average of, of the society, then people are marginalised. They do suffer discrimination in a structural, systemic way. And I don't want... <laughs> the thing that keeps me going is... I guess, an optimism or positivity, like a lot of people involved in the kind of work that we do, is if I don't have that belief in human humanity, let's go in people, I um, there's a lot of reason for people to just give up, get depressed, jack it all in. There's so much that's going on that sometimes you have to turn it off. This, it's disheartening. On the positive side, on the plus side, um, what I witnessed around um, Mr. Floyd's killing and how people from all around the world were doing their thing in support, that gave that gave people like myself a bit older a lift, especially as they were younger people of all colours. I remember when I used to demonstrate in the 80s, uh, it was very rare to see white people join black people on a march. And I would be marching about a death in custody. That was very common in those days. I was a young person and people would be arrested and they wouldn't come out alive. <laughs> people think I make this stuff up. I talk from lived experience, not because it's happened to my family and I don't operate on that level. I just operate on a sort of community level and a humanity level. But people would be arrested and then mysteriously they wouldn't be alive when they came out. They didn't even get as far as the courts. And there was one particular case that I was involved in as a young person, um, the case of Colin Roach. So another reference for people, it's like the recent social history. <laughs> and I don't think there was a public inquiry. So the family and the community set up an in- independent one. And I was the administrator on that inquiry. That's one of my things that I did. And I really wish I hadn't seen some of the photographs. And I'm sure there's members of his family still around. But as part of the inquiry, I saw some of the police photographs. I wish I hadn't looked, but, you know, you're young and you think you know everything. I still remember, I'm still haunted by looking at those photographs. So that was real for me. So I know it's American and this is the UK, but 
we have our own versions of some of this stuff. And yet, as I say, on the positive side, looking at what's going on today, 2022, 20, after the um, killing Black Lives Matter and the, and the global support, I still have hope and support that right-minded, like-minded people will still rise to the top. We, we will make progress. I have to believe that. And on that note, um, I recently became a non-executive director on a housing association. And it's, I don't, I don't have normal background, you know, 15 years an accountant or 20 years a CEO of anything. And, um, but I was still, I still went for this position. I was delighted that they said, yeah, we want you on board. I asked them as part of the feedback, I asked the chair. So why did I, why did you make this offer? And by the way, I want it. Thank you. <laughs> he said, you know, you did a great interview, right? Meaning that they weren't just, they weren't just doing um, positive discrimination. They were out there looking for somebody who thought differently about what they were doing. They looked at their own composition, which was mainly white, straight males. They were honest about that. I said, well, if, you, if I'm on your board, I can make a difference. I will definitely compliment what you've got going on here. We're so different. <laughs> I can make a difference. And they were laughing. And I was thinking straight away, perhaps I can, we can work together because we, he saw the humor in what I had to say. It didn't work against me when he asked me the question. I was able to be myself. They were able to be themselves. But I made it quite clear that, yeah, there's work to do because who you have around the table affects the person in the street. It's as simple as that. If you haven't got that diversity of thought and experience, um, it limits the way you look at things. So um, that was one of my reasons for putting myself forward. Uh, whatever I said, they liked it anyway. And there I am, probably the first black person of any gender on the board. And so it's a small progress in that regard. Someone has to be first sometimes. And I'm thinking like I've done in other roles, it would be good for tenants to see, ah, oh, okay, this, you know, it's a bit more <laughs> diverse on that board. What's our organisation doing? I think it's good for tenants. Are good. I think it's good for suppliers, contractors, the board, staff, just to have a bit of difference on the board psychologically and for people's um, mental well-being. So, that, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, I'm really happy that they, they took the argument that, or they were looking for something different, not the same old. Uh, you don't need to, you know, at HGN and other organisations, we've done a lot of work around the composition of boards, and uh, I know you've been involved yourself. And on the one hand, we recognise that things are changing so fast, the pandemic threw everything up in the air, and yet our way of approaching how we should staff decision-making um, vehicles is not keeping up. It's not keeping up with the rate of change and the disruption that's going on and the kind of agile thinking that you need. Um, by, by all means, you need people who can do that banking treasury stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who can help with the instability of the situations that we find ourselves in society rather than just thinking you do a plan for 30 years, which is you know what housing associations do. You have this 30-year plan. Nobody knows what's going to happen next year. And yet we act as if we know what's going to happen in 30 years. But the reality is, uh, look what's happened in the world in the last couple of years. If it's taught us anything, we need more people around the table who can help us solve stuff. We need to be less arrogant about the future. We need to be much more respectful about the planet that where we live, where none of us control or own. Excuse me. <laughs> And there should be a lot more challenge to this idea that corporations and big conglomerates can do what the hell they like with the planet when it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the people who live on it. That's all of us. Um, and I think, you know, that's in my own humble opinion, maybe not so humble, is where, is how our thinking has to change. We, you know, all these certainties that we've had in the past, we need to get rid of them. And it's not happening fast enough as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, um, I... I I, complete, I agree with what you're saying about uh, board diversity in many public sector organisations, including even private housing associations. Mm. I, mean, I know the National Housing Federation, the Charter Institute of Housing, um, there's white papers come out looking at where 
DNI board diversity is very high on the agenda. Mm. If you look at the recent 2020 Charity Commission guidance, DNI board diversity is very high on the Charity Commission's agenda as well. Because, as as you well know, we need to have lived, relatable experience that matches the the lived experience of the service users, of the tenants, as the beneficiaries of of the charity or housing association. Because we need to start rebuilding communities. And if you don't have any association with the communities you're trying to support, how can you provide resources and responses? Uh, Antisocial behaviour that goes on in in the communities. Uh, Housing associations are reducing tenancies to now five to seven years instead of lifetime tenancies. That has a massive impact on how people treat their community. They don't see it as a house for life anymore. They see it as a house for now. And of course, people aren't going to value where they're living in the same way if it just feels transient. So I think there's a huge amount that uh, representation can do of lived experience in public sector and, and 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 the private sector to make sure that people are being heard. Otherwise, we're designing systems. We go back to this. I think how we started it. We're designing systems for the incumbent privilege of society mm. that are supposed to cope with the needs of the minority and the excluded. How can there be any relation between the lived experience and and, and knowing what people need in their communities? And I think it, it, we have to value lived experience far more than I've done this in the past. And I think that's fantastic. The fact that not only have you been through a board diversity training program yourself, uh, an NED trainee program, but you've also got uh, a role in a housing session that is is forward thinking and actually starting to to, to understand their responsibility. I I really was impressed with them. It sounds ironic because I wasn't being patronising when I thought, yes, that's the sort of organisation I would like to be associated with. But let me get one thing absolutely clear around the lived experience piece. <laughs> we don't need anybody doing us any favours, us. And even the term marginalised, it's still um, it's in relation to the, the people, the groups in power. We're only marginalised because there is somebody who's dominating a situation. You know, it's not a badge that we're wearing, that there's something wrong with the way we think and operate. It's to do with power. So that hence the marginality, right? So I'm absolutely clear. I haven't been born here. Um, there's a whole swathe of people that we don't take advantage their, of their ability. So let me explain something because I'm working on this hypothesis. So I'm delighted. And um, I got there. I still feel, hopefully, mainly on my own merit and strength of argument. Um. However, I also acknowledge that I had to probably imitate some of the ways in which the you know these white straight males get onto boards. I had to imitate how they do that, and that is use your connections. You know, it's taken a long time, but normally marginalised people don't have connections. I have finally learned if I if I've got to get anywhere, I have to use my connections. I never did that because you're marginalised. You're on the outside anyway. So what connections? apart from the people you know, professionally, use your connections, network, learn. In my case, I had to, um, I did our board excellence program, not the board diversity one, because my background is not housing. My background is the sector, charity, community. So I didn't have the language of housing, but I know I'm more than capable of learning it. Put my, I was encouraged by a colleague to put myself on the course. I was sponsored by another housing association, I think out of their corporate social responsibility, learned what I had to learn so that when I went into an interview situation, I could speak social housing, (laughs) you know, the language, the territory. And that's what the Board Excellence Programme definitely gave me was that. And I set myself that goal that within a couple of months of getting that, I would apply and get this role. But I learned through doing the programme, use your connections, get, stay up to date, know, know know your stuff enough not expert, but you know enough about your stuff to operate credibly as a board member. Of course, I'm just starting this journey and I expect to be learning. I'm a learning specialist. I'm happy to learn. I'm always learning in a way that's worked against me because I never focus on one thing. I'm always learning lots of different things. But the important part I want to make about um, how people are left out, not just about race or colour or even class, it's stereotypes about who is fit enough to make decisions and work together, right? It's a stereotype. Um, 
the culture so, fit, the the face fit, the it, it, it um, you've been to the right school, you've been you've, you've worked in a similar organisation before, had a similar yeah. And I and, and I know there's comfort in that because it's it's you know I recognise that you know so we recruit each other and you know and it's comfortable. I get that. I'm a human. I see that. I'm not gonna. But it needs to be challenged because I think it's they. It's not always um, helpful to the problems that we have now. They're huge. The challenges we have now, and um, and having the same old response to it is not working. We can see that climate. You know the planet's in a mess. And here, speaking internationally, it's not just about the UK government or the American one. Is that you tend to find these elite groups in all countries, you know, you know, who run countries. That's what they do, and that's why they're. And I'm saying politically that that needs to be challenged much more. So this is where it's more than just race or gender. It's it's about who's in charge and the mess they've made. We need to stop allow them to make this mess and have a different kind of um, energy in the room. But come back to locally, in the UK, in our own country, I think that because of our school system, where you have different varieties of schools, which is a bit different from my colleagues in Europe, who I know I used to work closely with, you know, we've got a private system, state system, church system, we've got all sorts of systems, <laughs> uh, which aids and abets this kind of uh, fragmentization and elitism. And people in the middle don't get a chance to, I think we've gone backwards, they don't get a chance to um, influence what goes on. So I would say even in government, you have less people from working class backgrounds, even in the Labour Party, than you used to. You know, when the trade union movement was much more um, powerful than it is, and um, there were, it was called working men's colleges, you know, those kind of places. I mean, I know they weren't perfect, but it gave people another outlet to get that, real education to operate in a political um, context all those things are gone you might say rightly so but it's also had a sort of negative impact on people just you know the average person in the street what i would call working class in a positive sense not i'm not being i consider myself working class i'm not i'm not being demeaning when i say that it's about an attitude towards life it's a mindset um and so even the Labour Party has become narrower in some respects as we all become middle class, if I'm, if I'm not contradicting myself. And here I'm talking about culture. I'm talking about cultures, that the predominant culture is middle class. Even when you're not middle class, the culture that predominates, that is meant to be seen as better, permeates everything. How you recruit, how you dress for board to be a board member. It's everywhere. How you style your home. Um, that's the culture that dominates has been the one that we should uh, be, you know, imitating. And that has an impact on all sorts of people. Um, and, and I'm saying politically, there's a kind of diversity that's kind of reduced, even though you've got more women in Parliament or more black people. Where there's a kind of another narrowing down that's happened over the years. But that's just my opinion. More than happy to be challenged on it. I, I, I was I, I sniggered there as you were talking because I, I remember probably about a year or eighteen months ago I was doing some work with HDN and I was I was presenting uh, to the board of a housing association and I'm, I've been working with this housing association for a few months at uh, various things and, and I've been sort of pushed forward nominated to, give, to, to to present the report to the board and the person I was liaising with was. Um, one of the junior board members on HR or something like that. And she sort of subtly said to me, um, will you be wearing what you're wearing now? Uh, and I went, I said, well, what's the dress code of the board? She said, well, just up your game a little bit sort of thing. And I thought, Ooh. yeah, you, you can see my um, my collarbone and my shoulders and you're, you're now telling me how I should I was addressed. This is this is a woman. Mm. Uh, I mean, I did plan on, on on wearing a dress, despite the fact you can only see my shoulders. Um, mm. I, what I'm wearing now is a white t-shirt. I mean, if I told you this was a wedding dress, you go, you could probably <laughs> believe me. It, it, it's it's white and it's a t-shirt, but it could well be a modern style wedding dress. So there's still this expectation about how you show up and how you look. Mm. It's respectful. It's it adds value to your presence. All these various things you're judged by so many things. And even on a Zoom call, you're judged by how you show up to a virtual meeting. 
And what, and this is the contradiction for me, inside, outsider. I get all of those things. I also fight against it. Because mm. all I'm interested in is the content of what you have to say. I really am. That's all I'm listening for when I'm talking to someone. And yet what you're saying there, what I've just been referring to is the appearance of things often is more important than what's actually going on. So if you look respectable, if you look like you're part of us, sometimes that seems to have more weight than the intelligence and the competence of what's being said. Um, nobody's scrutinizing that because the person who's saying it looks the part, as I call it. They look mm. in charge. They look sensible. They look. And I'm thinking that's why people get away with murder because it's, it's a bit like our, our present government. They sound and look the part. And, and yet they can carry on making incredible mistakes that you could never make in, another, in, a, in a corporate setting or a public sector setting without being sacked. But they sound the part, they look the part. Um, call me shallow, but I think that that's one of my bugbears, is that we're a very shallow society. You know, depth seems to have lost, given way to appearance and superficiality. Um, I've, I I've realised I, I, I think I have more trust in people mm. that are more authentic. And, and that doesn't mean wearing a suit and tie, wearing a, 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 a dress that looks, or a, wearing a dress with a jacket and, and, and heeled shoes or things like this. I always think, well, does this person look authentic? Do they look comfortable in their own skin? Do they, do they, are they comfortable in front of me? Mm. That means far more than someone who's squashed themselves into this formal suit of armour, uh, the corporate image. And I, I think some of the things on the COVID, you know, doing the COVID announcements on uh, five o'clock every, every night, it was just three suits or three suits and a, and a woman in a dress with a jacket on. It was kind of thinking, I want to, I want, I want to see someone who's not who's prepared to a tie off, not have a jacket on, actually say, look, here's what I believe, not kind of the corporate line. And I think, but that then we become disruptors, we become subversive, we become activists, we become outliers you know, on the edge of society and yeah it's, it's the problem where you know, we go back to power privilege they're scared of of outsiders because the, the, and i don't i don't mean everybody i'm just fundamentally mm. Mm. privilege protects privilege it's the way we do things only we know how to do things properly mm. only we know how to behave how can we trust anyone who's not weak an outsider, a lower class person. Mm. How can we trust someone who hasn't been to Eton? Because what do they know? We think far bigger than they could ever think. And this is the perception, isn't it? And you bring someone who's who's prepared to be actually, I don't want to play by your rules. Everyone gets really scared. They get to their panic zone. What oh, this person's a hand grenade. What's going to go on next? And they're worried about disruption, aren't they? I couldn't agree more. Again, so much has been going on in the media. Jake the young footballer who came out as yes. gay recently. Yes. Is it championship? I don't think it's premiership. But anyway, it's one of those ships. <laughs> and um, the irony, okay, you know, the, the, the forces that kept him, that he's fought against, obviously. He's 17, I can't believe. But anyway, the strength of mind and purpose he must have to do what he did, okay? But ironically, the forces that in football that stop that because we all know this idea that there are no gay footballers is a load of nonsense, but you know, mm. it has to be maintained because the image of the game and someone by the powers that be, and that includes some of the footballers. And the irony is that, you know, because we've got this macho image, or I imagine this macho image that football's a man's game, and we, you know, and then to have somebody come out as gay, we can't have that because it kind of contradicts our, we can't, we can't line up the possibility that somebody can play football and be gay at the same time. It's like the two don't go. Whatever the forces are that stop people from coming out in sports, but football in particular, then you have this young, what I would call disruptor, just come out, just do it. I'm 17, I've got nothing to lose. And then he would probably be seen as being, you know, the prejudices, he's weak. Gay, you know, to be gay equals weak, equals effeminate, equals... It's the opposite of macho, masculine. 
like he said, toxic masculinity, because like, football has this other perception than the people who, who follow it. And the irony is, again, his behaviour, there is more strength in what he's done, because he knows, he said himself, he's probably opened himself up for attention that he doesn't want, you know, negative attention. Mm. And for me, the ability to be an outlier that he's done just now, because he is an outlier for sure, because he's, what, the second or third person in in 30 years to have done what he's done. I'm seeing him as the strong, that's the strong individual. That's the person with who I'd want to be sat around my table helping me make decisions. This person has demonstrated to me they're fearless, they think for themselves, um, etc., etc. But he'd probably be the last person because of the prejudice, because of these years of toxic masculinity. He's the last person who's going to be invited to um, you know, sit around the table and help make decisions. But the irony is he has more courage, foresight, modernity, whatever you want to call it, his little finger, compared to the people who keep the FA propped up. And then you have this contradiction that these, it's, you know, outliers are exactly the people you often need to move things along, to open mm. things up. And yet it's this great big drama because one teenage boy, man, young person, has come out and said he's gay. And it's a big deal in the media. I mean, it's something to celebrate, but it's also a reflection how sad we are and how slow progress is at the same time. So it's, it's one of those events again, another one, I must stop listening to the radio and stuff, where I'm delighted on the one hand, but I'm also <laughs> sad on the other that... Yeah. Progress is so slow. And, and, and we're in denial as well about what goes on. Just making that connection with, um, you know, the power dressing and all of that and this armoury, that we're almost in denial, that we're just humans and we have to put on this armoury just to get us a, through a meeting and to be convincing and be taken seriously. It's ridiculous. It's ridic- There's no authenticity yeah. there. So I agree with you. Yes. Now, I, I was watching... Uh... I don't know if you've watched the series, Freeze the Fear with Wim Hof. Yes. Um, yes. I was watching the other night, and when they were doing, this, they were doing the jump off the bridge thing, and I was watching um, Professor Green when, when he was at the top there, and he was seeking inside himself, and he decided out of all of them, he was the only one not to jump off the bridge, okay. and he climbed back over. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I remember thinking, wow, you know, Everyone else done it. Why couldn't you? Then I, then I listened to him. He said, jumping would have been the easiest thing to do. By not jumping, mm. it, it was a tougher decision for him because it would have been easier to go with peer pressure. It would have been easier to do what was expected, easier because everyone else has to walk back off and say, hang on a minute, I don't need to do this for you. And actually, I don't need to do it for me. Yeah. I value my life. I want to be a parent. I want to be a husband. Um, I want to continue my life. And I have a, a responsibility to people who love me not to put my life in danger. And I thought, wow, it, wow. It, you're so right. We go along with what's expected mm-hmm. for fear of letting people down for because it's easier. And mm-hmm. then when we stop and question it, think, actually, the most important thing I could do here is what feels right for me. And that takes more strength to swim against the tide than just to just go with the flow. And I think that's what you're saying here about Jake Daniels, who plays for Blackpool, which is in, as you say, you played in the championship the other week. He came for the first appearance. It's so easy to go with the flow because that's what society expects. It's so easy because you don't want that attention. You know, you know, you don't want to stir things up. Yeah, it's like keeping your head low almost down. Um and, not, and therefore not being, being able to be yourself. And I think that's what I mean in the introduction that you um, did around me. Is sometimes I feel exactly like an outsider. I mean, I'm an outsider looking in. That's what it feels like sometimes to not be part of the mainstream. But I don't necessarily see that as a burden. I sometimes, I sometimes see that as an advantage. And that's what I mean about being able to see things in more... You know, if you're in the circle you're looking out into the edges. If you're on the edge, you're looking beyond the edge and you're looking into the circle. That's how I I would describe it. And I think part of freeing your mind is to stop 
allowing the dominant culture to tell you that what you are bringing to the table is not valuable. So actually being a, being a minority is valuable because you're bringing a different disruptive um, perspective. Mm. Whereas if you accept the status quo, being a minority is something down, negative, disadvantaged. No, sometimes it is, but no. Sometimes being a minority means that your thinking is, is acute because you be in those spaces where you're not included. Equally, not being part of the mainstream um, brings a creativity because to survive, you have to think outside. I, I do like that expression. I'm not going to lie. You have to think outside the box. Um, be go against the um, grain because you're not part of the grain anyway. In my case, in, you know, so you often find that you're doing something a bit different because you're not part of the grain. But that, that can sometimes feel very good. And so, Professor Green's um, what you've just described about what he did on the program. For me, that's also about having the courage. I used to call it assertiveness, but, you know, and I still will use that term. Part of that is to have the courage to be your own person. Even when other people are contradicting you, going against you, is to have that strength of conviction that, you know, like you said, he doesn't owe the cast or the program makers anything. He will still be in himself, as well as an entertainer with an agent and getting paid, whatever it is. He will still be himself, which is the other roles that he plays. And he was bringing that to the show. And that's what, for me, is being authentic. You're not putting on an armour. You're not taking it off. You're not being this for somebody else to fit in. And I think, in a way, that's kind of like a definitional struggle. That's the whole, that's mm. how you disrupt things, is having the strength of mind. Even when the forces, you know, the power forces are incredible. Some people have been sacked for being themselves. <laughs> Some people have lost their lives for being themselves. It's very courageous. Um, I know I'm not fighting any particular, you know, I'm doing it in the luxury of my own armchair, but I'm with those people. You know those people, this is controversial, let's see what you think of this, Joe. You know the climate change people who <laughs> fly on the motorways? XR, Extinction Rebellion, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, why I won't personally do it myself, because I'd be too concerned about the police uh, to name, you know, and the cold, whatever. I totally have due respect for them and I support them. Even though a lot of people are anti them because they get in the way of cars and people get into places and stuff like that. I see I'm with them morally because they're saying, wake up, you're, you're all sleeping, people. We've got to do something dramatic to get you to pay attention. And um, I get what they're trying to do. So even if I were, had been driving along and they were doing that, I would just swallow it down. I would, because they've got nerve and maybe privilege. Yeah. <laughs> when the police come, perhaps they don't get, but actually something has been thrown into the van. But I'm not so sure what would happen to me. I need to be alive. I need to stay around a bit longer. Yeah. I totally support what they're doing, even though it's annoying to a lot of people. If you look at, I mean, I, I saw something in the news yesterday, I'm not sure if it's going ahead, but there's a planned tube strike for Jubilee weekend. So if you're a, uh, a, a an unsatisfied worker with a union or with a body that represents you, you have the power in your work mm -hmm. to, be able to, to be able to influence your employer's behaviour and decisions by using strike action, by using uh, disruption within your workplace to draw home your cause. Mm. If you're mm. protesting about the planet, yes, the only course of action you have is to go on strike to impact other people. And that means closing a bridge. That means disrupting people's lives, blocking fuel tankers. If the fuel tankers went on strike, people go, well, that's okay. But if the, if the Extinction Rebellion blockade, that's seen as not okay. Hang on a minute. If you want to protest against the planet, you should have the same rights as somebody who wants to protest against the employer in, in a way. I don't agree with violence. I don't agree with no. anything that's violent. But I do agree people have the right to create a disruption that highlights a point uh, within the law. And let's not get into the, mm. the, the change of the laws we're looking at and the, the Social Justice Act and presenting pe preventing people from, from protesting. I think providing people act within the law as it was, I'm not sure about the new law, but mm. as it was, I, I, th I think we, sh we should all have the right to be stand up and be counted. We don't live in a, in a dictatorship. We don't live in a, a state where the people can't speak. 
especially now with social media, everybody can be a publisher. Everyone's an author. Everyone's an activist. Yeah. Everyone can get a Twitter following. Suddenly, you can you can be an influencer in your in, in, as you said in your own armchair in your in your, in your kitchen. <laughs> mm. So we all have the power to to, to create our cause. And one thing I realized is I spent best part of fifty years of my life not having a specific identity. I just was. I fitted into the majority box. I fit into the privileged box. Mm. And it's not since I, I gender transitioned at the age of 52 that I realized that suddenly I do have an identity. I do have to think about how I fit into the planet now. I do have to think about who, what I meet, who I am in relation to other people, which I'd never thought about before. I've also realized that the doors that used to open really easily mm. don't seem to open in the same way as they did before. So whether it's because I'm, in my 50s now, I'm in 57, whether it's because I'm a woman and whether it's because I'm trans or whether it's because I'm LGBT perceived or maybe I, I'm a bit too queer to fit into the, any any beauty standards of, of gender. Mm. Maybe it's those things or maybe it's just because I mix with different people now. I don't know. But I've noticed there's more friction in opportunities than there used to be. Um, mm. But what I have found is more camaraderie is the wrong word i'm more empathy and compassion with other people who as you say marginalized marginalized by society not mm. marginalized as a person no absolutely. we're marginalized by the privilege yeah i uh, completely agree with that so i find more camaraderie within the marginalized community, the, the outliers the on the edges mm. and mm. i find that completely powerful and i and i would never have had a conversation like this with you and other people that i've met had i been in my own ivory tower, not looking out and seeing what's going on in the world. And I think people try to weaponize the word woke. To me, mm. I'm proud to be woke. I'm awoke. I'm woken up to the issues of social justice, the issues of the planet, the issues that are going on in the world. I'm not perfect. I could do more. I'm not sitting here putting myself in a, in a pedestal saying I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wonderful person these days. But my direction of travel is being more awake to what's going on in the world. And I want to learn more about it, not push back and go, hang on a minute, you're threatening my space. I just feel like saying amen to that. <laughs> um, and like you just said, we probably, we, we us two would never have met if, for the same reason you've just outlined, you know, this space that we're in. As I say, I'm not a specialist. I'm not an expert around EGI. Mine is, Call me Sunday school. You know, I just want everyone to be happy. <laughs> I just want everybody, nobody owns this planet. No one's in charge. Call me a hippie. Uh, I just want everyone to be happy and to the best of our ability. But there's so much in the way of that. Um, and that's why some of us are drawn to this space while also trying to have our own lives. You know what I mean, Joe? Is that you're contributing to that part of you, but you also just want to be yourself, which is like, loafing around watching telly do you know what I mean it's it's yeah as I say it can be wearying sometimes when stuff still happens and you just feel for people but we can't let let up there's too much work to be done um but let's just get this straight also we're not being paid favors here it's about opening up the panorama, the mosaic of human talent there is that we've been in denial about because the way our society is set up is to keep certain types of talent and ability wrapped up and only give space to a certain... And that's to all of our disadvantage. As, um, but the other thing I just want to say before, you know, um, in terms of the things I do, I was thinking, what is the connection between all of them? Because they seem so disconnected, but actually they are connected. So when I'm doing safeguarding training, this is for people who work with people who could be victims of other people's abuse, you know, so people with perhaps physical learning disabilities because of age or dementia or they are vulnerable, not in and of themselves, but to people who may wish to exploit that. And so safeguarding for me is also an extension of the equality, diversity and inclusion piece. Because it recognises that for some people, have you seen that wonderful diagram about the difference is in order to level up the playing field, we have to put in training with the staff who work with and deliver services to people who are more vulnerable to abuse and exploitation because of who they are. And for me, that is part of EGI, is recognising and seeing they exist rather than 
in the olden days, Victorian times, shove people in a home and forget about them. We've moved on from that, so thank God for that. Um, so for me, there's a connection with that. Becoming a board non-executive director for me is also about ETI, not only because of who I am and the difference I'm bringing to the table. Um, it's putting my money where my mouth is, is I've been moaning about where decisions are made. And so <laughs> I'm putting myself up for being part of decision-making processes. It's lower level than the government, but it's still, housing associations have a great influence on people's life. Like I've heard you talk about, um, your home is a huge factor in your well-being and the way you see yourself. So that's that connection. I also believe I'm, a, I'm into mentoring and the support that none of us get to anywhere without the support of other people. And I've been a keen advocate of mentoring for a very long time before I joined Housing Diversity Network. And the mentoring was always about supporting young people. You know that stage where you're still becoming yourself or not? You know, that awkward period in our lives that a lot of, you know, we, some of us have easier transitions, others of us, it's very troublesome. And I used to be running a mentoring program that put the most unlikely people together with teenagers. And that taught me something too, that when you support a young person, you're the gift that you're giving that young person. And I'm saying that as the person who is managing the scheme, not as the mentor. So I can big up those mentors, these random members of the community. So one of my favorite pairings was um, a retired older gentleman, middle class, cuffly, blah, 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 head of HR, multi, you know, Dubai, flying around the world, paired him with a 14-year-old boy, single parent, mum's from South Africa. You couldn't get more dissimilar to people. But the beauty of mentoring is I know that this mentor, because I recruited him, um, was humane. Humane had the time, wanted to give back. I have an individual here who's talented, and they usually are, aren't they? Naughty people, naughty kids. Um, Multi-talented, but totally um, without direction, lost. Put these two together, the magic that happened, the long and short of it is, that young person is now running his own business. And yes, of course, the influence of his family and friends may have come into it, but I know for sure the influence of that mentor was huge because he said so. And for me, this is where, you know, the upside of the work that we do, there are still small, wonderful games happening, not always with EDI on the label, but it's the action. That particular white man, he, he wasn't seeing himself as an EDI warrior, <laughs> but he recognised that he's had certain advantages in life and this person hasn't got any. And I think he saw a little bit of himself and that was a mischievous side in him. The two did fantastic work together. And for me, that, has, that, is, that story is as much about inclusion and social justice as the big things. It doesn't always have to be a big action. It's a mindset. It's about knowing who your tribe are and who just wants good for people. And I think I would include that mentor in that group. He just wanted good for somebody else. And he wasn't phased by a young, black student. He wasn't like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> it's like reverse, you know. He was happy to go into that space. But that's also about mindset that we, we, we've been talking about. And sometimes um, the mindset can be influenced by exposure to people, or maybe you've always had that mindset. You just didn't know it until you've been given that opportunity. So I just wanted to throw that in because it's just a reflection of who I am as an individual and where I get my influences from. And I carry that community thing with me everywhere I go, that whatever you're doing, for me, it should have an impact somewhere or relevant to the community, the people out there, especially the most vulnerable people in society. It should have some benefit otherwise i'm not interested so <laughs> that's that's um, why fantastic and mm. i think on that note mm. um that's amazing so thank you so much i mean i can't believe it's been over an hour we've been chatting away and we're going to carry on for a, 
in fact, I'm pleased we're going to be meeting up in person in a couple of weeks' time in, in yeah. the think tank in Birmingham, aren't we? So yeah. it'd be great to have a, uh, spend some more time together and, and, and chat more. But no, it's been really insightful. Uh, I've loved to hear your perspective and your armchair activism and your inside outsider uh, perspective on things. You know, it's, it's, it's stimulated a lot in my head as well. So, Maureen, how can people get hold of you if they if they'd like to take some uh, if they'd like to uh, reflect on this conversation? Oh, I'd love to connect with people, like-minded people, people just you know curious, nosy, whatever. Um, LinkedIn. So you've got my name. Um, I don't think there are, there are that many people who've got my name in the world, so I'm quite easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, and maybe Do you Joe, want to you spell can spell it out because you don't you don't spell Maureen yeah, yeah, in a right. traditional it's way. It's spelled like Dory. Yeah, it's not spelled in the Irish way. So it's M O R E N first name, and then my surname, family name is P A S C A L Pascal, as in the French philosopher. For those oh. who know that, <laughs> yes. I was thinking of programming well. language. That's so right, the mathematician Pascal. Programming language, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so that's, yeah. So that's my IT. I know. I, I suppose maybe that was named after the philosopher. I suppose. Yes. <laughs> I have no idea how I got that name, but here we are. That's another. That's another yeah. podcast. <laughs> podcast. I know how I've got my name, so yeah, I, I, I had the luxury of picking my own name. So, yeah, I thought we just keep giving them. Lockwood, no, <laughs> yeah. not Lock. Really? Uh, yeah, I picked both my names. That's that's a, that's a story for another day as well. I oh, made, right. <laughs> made made my entire name up. It's uh, yeah, it's not my oh, family wow. name at all. So oh, anyway, wow. it's 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 podcast is about you. So let's. Uh, Someone can interview me and ask me that question another day. <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, as, as, as Maureen just said, yeah, LinkedIn is a great place to get, get in contact. Uh, search, for, search for Maureen Pascoe. You'll find her on LinkedIn all over the place. So, yeah. And so a huge thanks to you, the listener, um, for tuning in, for getting this far, for staying to the end. Absolutely fantastic. If you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, the usual places for future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Please tell your friends, tell your colleagues, please share this episode if you've enjoyed it. I've also a number of other exciting guests already lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you'd like to be a guest, please let me know. And I'd also welcome feedback and suggestions on how I can improve the show. Please email me to joe.lockwood seachangehappen.co.uk and finally my name is joanne lockwood it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today catch you next time bye bye <laughs>